Greetings and welcome to the God Speaks podcast. My name is Billy Coppage. And I'm Ricky Gidamel, and we both serve as catalysts for orality with the Lausanne movement. We want to welcome you to an ongoing conversation on orality, discipleship, and missions. We're excited to introduce to you a God who loves to communicate, who's been telling his story through rich media since before creation. This multimodal communication is recorded in his word and best embodied and exemplified through the living word, his son, Jesus Christ. And so because we are humans and made in his image, we believe that we were made to go and do likewise, to communicate with him and with others. Building on that foundation, we want to explore how we can reprioritize communication, specifically oral communication, as a vital category within the church's understanding of missions as we seek to communicate the gospel to the world around us, drawing from God's example. Each episode will be inviting different seasoned orality gurus and practitioners to help us along the way. This conversation is impacting our lives, our families, and our work. And we're excited that you're joining us as together we can reaffirm that our God speaks. I I, I may go ahead and have us jump in. And I know our numbers are small here. Um, I want to be discouraged by that. But I'm actually, Ricky had reminded me what we're doing is a couple of things. And a couple of you all are new here. So let me just throw this out there. One of the things we're trying to do is create a bit of a conversation on on orality and and kind of just trying to think our way through some of these key issues. And so Bill and Tom are giving us direction here, which I'm very thankful for. And and kind of their book, Return to Oral Hermeneutics, has been kind of key for us and kind of uh, jumpstarting our conversation. Um, but But the other thing we're trying to do is not just create a live conversation, and it's good for me. I haven't seen Larry in a long time. And I just, I feel like Tara, I, we have many, I think we have a lot of common friends. So, uh, which is fun. So um, I, I, I think the other thing that we're trying to do though, is we're trying to create a resource. And, and that's one of the things that has been kind of building on our hearts is how do we not just do one-off events, but how do we create some resources? And so we are recording this, Ricky's helping us. We're kind of in, in podcast form or trying to convert it to podcast form um, so that then it's a resource that we can distribute. And, uh, and again, I think all of us, we're all trying to, we're not, I loved what Tara, you said earlier, um, as you said, I am a practitioner and I, I think all of us are, I, I think that's exactly, that's, that's how we all are. But, Oh, and because we're practitioners, we're always encounter people that are trying to better understand God's talk to their hearts or they've met Jesus in some deeper ways. And they're trying to better understand how they can learn, whether it's orality or, or um, any of the you know, multiple genres of, of oral communication. So we're wanting this to be a resource that you can send, that you can share with people. So that's part of what we're also doing is trying to build something that has enduring value as Rick's about, which I, I like that language. So again, I, I want to welcome everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, and I, we're, we're, we're going to mix things up a little bit. We had, we had previously talked about doing a whole session on, on oral hermeneutics, uh, sorry, on Hebraic hermeneutics today. And I asked Bill and Tom, if we could postpone that till next month, uh, um, because Ricky couldn't be with us. 
Ricky's in Israel and has brings a lot to the table for that conversation. So I know we're mixing mixing order and Bill and Tom, I'm sorry to do that. I know there's there is a bit of a development and progression and we're kind of jumping the gun today. But I'm very excited, even with having said that, I'm excited. I think what we're doing today, we're looking at moving towards a, a, care, a theology that kind of takes into account orality and specifically is building on um, on characters in scripture. And I, I'm super excited about that. I feel like, oh, man, um, I think this is so good for all of us. So maybe let me just open us in a word of prayer, and then I'll turn it over to you guys. Is that all right? Sure. Great. Jesus, I do just want to say thank you. Good, good. Jesus, I do just want to say thank you for these ones that have joined us this morning. And I want to say thank you for your word. I was reminded again, um, you are a God who speaks. And, and you don't just speak to us. There's a, there's a perpetual ongoing communica- uh, conversation happening within the very nature of the Godhead. And, uh, and you live in perpetual conversation, communion between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and the miracle is, is if we you're inviting that conversation. Uh, that interpersonal conversation. You have created a space for us to join. And I, we, we can't fully get our minds around that, but we know that's awesome. And we want to say thank you. And we want, to, we want to participate in that conversation to the fullest extent possible. And we want to help invite and create opportunities for other people to participate in that conversation. And we think orality and oral communication is critical for that and for helping people engage your word so they can know you and that kind of intimacy. So yeah. Lord, we're all busy. We all have other responsibilities, but could you help us today? Could our conversation today stimulate the thoughts and the ideas, the connect, the connections that need to happen and uh, for your purposes and for your kingdom around the world. And I, I just be blessing. Uh, we have we have those that are literally, uh, whether they're in uh, Nebraska or whether they're outside of Fresno, whether they have Chiang Mai on their heart or whether they're in Manila, um, all of us have the world on our hearts. And all of us, we're here because we love people and we're concerned about their, their knowing you. So could today be a part of our better understanding how to love them better? So thank you again for our fellowship. Would you guide our time, the technology, and all of our our conversation? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Bill and Tom, turn it over for you guys. And I think, again, we'll kind of maybe do some discussion. And then um, if you have a a quick question, interject that. But then otherwise, we'll save those and have a bit of kind of follow-up, some more kind of processing at the end. That'd be great. Right. Right. Sounds good. Well, as Tom and I discussed how to best approach this, we thought it'd be good if I sort of interviewed Tom, questioned Tom, and and uh, let it free range a bit from there. Tom wrote the chapter on character theology in our book, so he's the, he's the most expert on that theme. Um, so I'll just ask him questions. Let me say, there's a I sent to a leader in Zimbabwe. He's one of the leaders of the Lemba Messianic Jewish community in Zimbabwe. His name is Godwill. I can't pronounce his last name, but 
he's going to be trying to connect here from Zimbabwe. So if he tunes in while we're uh, while we're talking, that's who it is. He's a he's a Zimbabwe leader of the Messianic Jewish community down there. Good friend of mine. Um, so character theology. Uh, yeah, let's let's just start, Tom. What what is character theology? How do you define character theology? <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a good good question. And character theology, I fell into it. Uh, it wasn't something I thought about deeply and then came up with. Um, it goes back to the Ifugao and their my propositional approach to them uh, wasn't flying, so I tried to try other things, and this led me to or hermeneutics, which is a process which leads to a product, which is character theology. And I thought. Maybe it'd be best if I, um, before defining it a little bit, is to uh, give a story, a little bit of Bible story here. That the, the last two scenes of the, the book of Jonah, and because you're familiar with that and what preceded that. And um, if you remember, the context was that um, Jonah had gone in a day's walk and had preached to them and... Um, they actually responded and started wearing um, sackcloth and so forth and burlap and so forth. And, and then the king heard about it and he did the same thing. And then he said, nobody eats, nobody drinks, not even the animals, put burlap on everybody. And so the repentance was taking place. Well, when we get to the last two scenes there in chapter four, um, Noah, is, uh, Noah uh, Jonah is really mad. Okay, and the more he thinks about it, the madder he gets. And so he finally says, okay, God, this is exactly what I said was going to happen when I was in, in um, my own country. And that's why I went to, to Tarshish, some 2,500 miles. I want to get way, way back, away from these, this Nineveh country. And <clears throat> I knew, because you're not like these other guys, you have so much mercy. You have so much love for people. You have so much grace for people and you want to change your mind. And yes, you can be very mad at certain times, but you change your mind all the time because of your grace for people. Well, look, you didn't kill them. Kill me. Okay. <laughs> it's interesting. And God asked him a simple question. Hey, Jonah, <clears throat> you have any good reasons for being angry? And Jonah doesn't even respond. He takes off. He heads for a high place where he can overlook the city. And he wants to see if something's actually going to happen to the city. And as he gets up there and it's kind of hot, so he starts building himself this little shelter of leaves and stuff that he could find around. And he's sitting there waiting, sulking. And all of a sudden this... God sets this little vine that starts growing with big old leaves on it, and it helps shade him. And his anger is now turning a little bit to be, he's about more pleasant all of a sudden because of that, that vine that God sent. And But that next day, that, net, that evening, he sends a worm, and that worm eats that vine, and the next morning, it's dead. And the sun is back again, and it's hot. And there's an eastern wind that God sent. And it's really, really hot. And he's starting to feel faint. And he says, okay, kill me. It's better off that I'm dead. And 
the eternal one says again, hey, Jonah, don't you understand? You had this gourd that turned your anger into be, to be a more pleasant person. You didn't do anything about that. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't protect it. No. Shouldn't I have mercy and pity on this great city of Nineveh? Some 120,000 people who they don't know their right hand from the left hand. They don't know good from evil. Not to mention all those innocent animals that are there as well. That's how he ends it. Pretty abrupt. <laughs> and I was going to ask you before I started it, that you make a list of all the characters that you saw or heard as we went down through that story. And make a list of them. And it's interesting that when God chose to reveal himself, yes, he did certain things. I mean, there was the creation and so forth. But many times he uses people to help with their demonstration of what they do and say and act and how they act and what they wear and so forth. Everybody else he uses people to define who he is. And so it's like, wow. If you were God, would you have done that? Would you rely on people to, could we learn something about God from what Jonah said, from Jonah's life himself, what he did, how his, he reacted? Yeah, we learn all kinds of things about God in this little, just two little scenes that ends the story. And so character theology has to do with God selecting certain people and you could ask, how many people are in the scripture? Yeah, well, that's how many characters? How many characters are there in the Bible? <laughs> yeah, uh, getting close to 3,000. Close to 3,000, right? Yeah. And I don't know the exact number, but um, and, and it also gets back to how one defines characters, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And um it's pretty simple in this story you had jonah right so he's an individual you have god so that's a spirit so not just human characters we're not just looking only at human characters there you go it's there's more a, than human characters yeah there's balaam's donkey in the spirit world <laughs> right spirits yeah. spirits uh demons uh, balaam's donkey uh you know, uh, yeah. characters could be, can, can characters be a group, a nation, a family? There you go. Pharisees, yeah. Sadducees. Pharisees as a group, right. Israel nation. as a communal group, right? Yeah. Yeah. And back to the spirit world, he said, you're not, you're not like other gods. So he also knows, right? Jonah knows that there, there's good ones and there's bad ones, right? <clears throat> So characters is pretty broad of what's in there. Mm -hmm. And even when you go down to the, through the story, was the worm a character in the story? What's uh, the what? The worm. Oh, the worm. The worm that ate the vine. Is that a character in the story? How about that Eastern wind, that hot Eastern wind that God said, was that a part of the character? in the story that helps drive the plot along? 
the conflict that he's going through internally. I suppose so you, could, kind of you, you could personify the wind, but the, the wind is not really a personal character, but you can personify it as a, as a playing the role of a character, I suppose. Yeah. That's how you put it there. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You talk about controlling characters. What, what are controlling characters? In the story, you have people in the backdrop, like, um, I'm trying to think in this story here, using this as a backdrop. The controlling stories, characters in this story are going to be God, right? And Jonah, those are the two main ones, the protagonists and the antagonists that are going at it back and forth in their discussion. <clears throat> and then you have people in the backdrop. We don't know anything about those people that um, re repented, right? And they put on yeah. the burlap. People of Nineveh. Yeah. Of Nineveh. Yes. And you have the king. Those are, the king would be more of a controlling character because he had say over the course of the whole country and he told them what to do. Okay. So we've got to repent. Oh, maybe God will take this away. Maybe he won't destroy us. <clears throat> and so don't do this and don't do this. Make the animals put where burlap, put the burlap on the animals, take care of them. They'll see what God does to us. Yeah. So those would be controlling characters in there. But some of the ones that repented in the initial, the, the, the Ninevites, we don't know much about them other than they're just, they're there. <clears throat> they tell us a little bit about the story. They inform us a little bit, but the controlling characters are going to go to God and yeah. to Jonah <clears throat> and probably yeah. the king. Those probably be the three main controlling characters within that story. <clears throat> so we call this character theology. So how do we theologize from the characters? Uh, for instance, this Jonah story, how do we theologize about God? How do we, how do we gain insight into God from the character of Jonah? And how would we interpret it? How are we getting a better picture of who God is through Jonah? Yeah. That's character theology, right? We were exactly. Uh, yeah. Once again, it's, it, as Jonah's reaction to God, in a sense, changing his, moving from anger to demonstrating grace, which tells us what? We know now he can get mad. So that tells us something about God. That starts to define who he is. But it also says he, de he demonstrates mercy. He shows grace. His love is loyal. So those are the propositions that come out of there. Out of the, they're out, all encased. Out of the story. Out of the story. Yeah, they're encased. Would we, in that would, story. We give, would we give like a theological proposition or a theological statement about the character of God from the fact that God changes his mind? There you, you go. Know, God, he's going he's gonna to destroy Nineveh, then he changes his mind. What does that say about the character of God? He changes yeah. his mind. He relents. You know, how, how do we describe the character of God based on that action of God that he changes his mind? Yeah. In other words, he's very open to what people will, how people will respond to his message, right?
Yeah, yeah. So these people, the Ninevites, responded in a very positive way. Right. And that changed his mind. It's amazing so to me. That God is much more flexible. Yeah. Flexible. He's, he's personal. He's relational. Mm-hmm. He, uh, his character doesn't change, I would say, but he, his actions change based on how people respond. He's, per, he's in personal relationship and in dialogue with human beings. That's, that's an amazing observation. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah, so we get to, there's a lot of propositions, but we have a tendency to, one of the first things we tend to do is go to the story and what, pull out those propositions right away. And we almost separate them from that story itself. And what we have to see is those propositions are intertwined with that story. And, and to separate them, it's going to lose some of its meaning. It's going to lose some of its punch. But when it's tied back to the story, then it takes on that extra meaning, that surplus of meaning that we talked about last time. Yeah. Systematic theology teaches us what? To cut to the chase. Whereas... Oral hermeneutics is going to tell us to character theology, which is going to tell us to what? Cut to the character. Go to the character. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think, um, when you think back of what gave us systematic theology, it takes us back to modernity. And that had a great fit for that era. And so one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, have we moved to a different era? So we're in postmodernism or somewhere, whatever it's going to be called now. Has that changed? Or what is the theology that will have the impact that systematic theology had for modernity? And that's what we believe is going to be character theology. That's going to be the, it's more the come and see, taste and see, figure it out. Notice how God taught Jonah here. Yeah. He didn't just say, hey, Jonah, you're off base here, man. You got to get, what did he do? He's just asking questions, right? And he made him reflect on his own life. In fact, that's so mad at and he had, after that first question, he, he never he never answered it, right? He just took off. We, as he's sitting there, what do you think he's thinking about? <laughs> uh, maybe I should have answered God on that one. Uh, what was my answer? Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it re- makes you reflect on that. But that starts to show you how God responds even to the Christian side, right? And he's the prophet. He's the one. How does God respond to him? So not just the, I'm thinking maybe I'm thinking maybe we could actually do a bit of character theology on on this theme, because a lot of us coming to this, if we're biblically literate, if we studied theology, pretty much all of us assume God does not change. God does not change. God is uh, huh. same yesterday, today and forever and so on. But yet in this story, it looks like God changes. Well, let's go a little bit deeper with that. And this is this isn't this character theology. We go deeper. We probe. Let's ask some questions. What about those other statements that say God never changes? Well, here in this story, He changes His mind. What's going on here? 
Maybe some of you, the rest of you would like to, you know, go deeper on this question. Does God change or doesn't he change? You're muted, Larry. I was thinking of the story from Saul in 1 Samuel 15. It's a story that I've actually worked on and know. Uh, and, it, you know, uh, he's supposed to kill the Amalekites. And Samuel comes to him and says, does God delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as, uh, you know, as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? And then because you've rejected the word of the Lord, then God has rejected you from being king. And he, he actually repents and says, you know, okay, I have sinned against you. I listened to the people's voice. And then God says, no, you have rejected the word of God. He's rejected you from being king. And he tries to go away, grabs his robe and it tears. And he repeats that again. And then the final kind of the climax of that story is God is not a man that he should repent. You know, it, it puts an extra emphasis on that. On that particular point, Saul, uh, even though he tried to repent, uh, he had broken the word of God. He had disobeyed. And in that case, God, uh, you know, Samuel just reemphasizes the, the theology of it all, the systematic theology, I guess you say, of God doesn't change his mind. But uh, in character theology, we're, we're seeing clearly here that God does respond to man's repentance uh, so there, there's a balance, it seems to me, between what we understand about the person and the attributes of God and, you know, what we we're reading here in Jonah. Yeah. Interesting. John, you were going to say something? Unmute, unmute yourself, John. Yeah. Yeah, I like to uh, indicate before I speak. Hi, folks. Um, just a few thoughts on that question. I mean, obviously, God, by his nature, his nature doesn't change. <clears throat> but he is also sovereign, and um, he can do what he wants to do. We know, too, that he, because of his righteousness and uh, uh, purity, he will, he will punish and judge uh, sin. Eventually, he'll judge and punish nations. And we've seen that all through history. Um, but the, the, one of the main themes of the book of Jonah, from how I see it, is that he is a God of second chances. And we see that, that he gave Jonah a second chance, and uh, he also gave the city of Ninveh a second chance, the people. But eventually that nation was judged and destroyed. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore because it was an evil nation. But they repented, and he, they got some extra time. I'm just wondering how we can, that's great, John. I'm just wondering how we can then state from, from the character of Jonah and God, God's relationship to him and the dialogue, how we can state something about the character of God from the fact that he changes his mind here. Could it be well, that? He shows mercy. He, he's a God of justice, but he's also a, a God of mercy. Like in human terms, yeah. a judge. Can judge according to the law, but then he can also show mercy. Greetings, Godwill. Godwill, this is this is Godwill. He's uh, from Zimbabwe. He's a leader of the Messianic Jewish community in Zimbabwe. He appeared. Now it looks like he disappeared. Anyway, oh, there he is. Oh, there he is. That's he's, 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 
God will. Yes, thank you. Right. God will, yeah. Sorry, John. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry for interrupting. Go ahead again, John. Oh, um, okay. Uh, what did I say? God is also, it's, it's, you could say, look at it like in a regular courtroom. A judge has to judge according to the law, uh, <clears throat> but he can also show mercy. He has the authority and the right to show mercy and to forgive. And certainly our God does do that. Otherwise, we're all lost. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that God changes. Okay, he doesn't change, but he has he has the ability by his very nature to show mercy, and that's why we're all here today because he's showing us mercy. Yeah, we all yeah, deserve yeah. to die. So could we say goodwill? Share. Go ahead. Let's Go let goodwill take a turn. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Thank you so very much. Thank you. Sorry, I came a bit late. I, I don't know if I'm out of context. I was trying to log in. But um, the way that I see it, um, there's a time when the children of Israel uh, made a golden calf while Moses was on the mountain with God. And um, if you remember, God had decided to, uh, to blot out all the children of Israel and start anew with Moses and start another great new people with Moses. But if we go to Exodus chapter 34 from verse 6, um, looking at it also from a Hebraic point of view, we have a section where we learn about the 13 attributes of God. And from mm. there, we learn that God is compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abundant in loving kindness, he shows mercy to thousands of generations, and there are a whole lot of things that they've actually outlined there. So the way that I look at it, God will change in order to express his gracious self. So his gracious character stays the same, but because people change, his response changes because of his, out of his gracious character, his consistent character. Uh, when people change, his res God's response changes. Something like that. Does that sound like some good character theology? <laughs> Thanks, God. Will yeah. Yeah. Let's go, Tara, and then Chuck, maybe. I just love and affirm all that y'all are saying. That's just beautiful. As I'm listening to the story and pondering the story and thinking of God's character and how he never changes. The way I see it in this story is he's a forgiving God. And no matter how bad the people are, if the people repent, he forgives. And, and so for me, it's demonstrating the character of God is so consistent that you can have an entire city and he would still forgive them if they repented. And so that if you seek him, you will find him. If you repent, he will speak into you and give you the forgiveness he desires to give. So for me, that's showing his character doesn't change. Regardless of the people's behavior, he will make his forgiveness available if we repent and seek him. To me, that's incredibly beautiful. Good. Yes. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. That's good. Chuck. 
Tom, I think again, this this uh, probably weighs back onto your one of your earlier statements, Andrew. Uh, it seemed to me that our conversation, even the question, uh, points back to our reliance on modernity, the Enlightenment, and we've come up with another one-verse systematic theology. Yes, the character of God doesn't change, but we've got another one-verse. It's like the, you know, oh, well, don't get any other one-verse theology debates here. <laughs> yeah. Um, however, um, Billy, when you had your kids or when you got married, did you change? Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, do you think God changes every time another of his children come home who say, I love you? Of course he changes. Does his character change? Well, in our nice Western systematic way of thinking of things, because we have to think that way, because that's the way we were taught to think. No, God doesn't change uh, in that sense. And Hebrews is pretty clear about that. But I think we need to be careful even about these kinds of questions that we are begging back into our systems to describe God. And the way I, I love, and Tom and I have talked about this a lot, uh, approaching any kind of discussion on any book of the Bible. We talked about doing a commentary on Romans, total character commentary of Romans rather than the systematic theologies that you read. Uh, you cannot understand Romans unless you understand those who are living by faith, those who were justified, those who were, the whole book starts out talking about this Jesus, son of David. How do you understand the book of Romans without that? Uh, anyhow, uh, our question uh, betrays a little bit of who we are. And maybe even uh, we who are on the call, or even more so, uh, those who are not on the call in, the, in this meeting, I mean, what they might say about this. I think, Chuck, that's the, I, I appreciate that. And it's interesting because I know all of us are practitioners. And I, I'm curious if any of you have had this experience, because I know we're also all trainers where you're in the middle of a training and you get into a Bible story and it actually gets really intense or really good or God goes up, but you actually have to kind of keep the training going on. Okay. Discussion here because we're not actually doing Bible story or Bible, whatever. What we're doing is we're doing a training to learn how to do this with other people. Yeah. So this is what I noticing, And if I can, just as I reflect on our call, because it's interesting, we're talking about a pretty intense theological point, you know, the character of God and whether he changes. I want to, and I love that. And again, I, I, I love what Tara said. I thought you said it so well. Like there's, there's this beauty to the forgiveness of God that he would forgive an entire city. Like, oh my goodness, like Jesus, do it again. <laughs> like have mercy. <laughs> so there's something about that, that we all need to hear this morning. But I, I want to put, push us back to kind of the, the more macro conversation. And I think Chuck was trying to as well to say, we're talking about character theology in a more broad sense. And I'm wondering, what is it? What is 
trying to build, one of my questions is, is does character theology, Tom and Bill, does it assume kind of our systematic categories or are we trying to, in a sense, maybe we can't get away from those because of our conditioning or upbringing or background or education, whatever, but does character, when you talk about character theology, are you talking about it as building on top of systematics? Are you talking about it as something different than like biblical theology? And if so, in what way, where does it fit? Because I, I hear you saying it's different. And I think Chuck was trying to warn us not to kind of just fall into our old patterns and explore from the character theology perspective. But I wonder if you could just talk about when you talk about character theology, are you talking about something as different than um, or in rejection of the others or kind of where where is it supposed to fit? And does it fit? Usually we think of systematic theology wholly coming out of our biblical theology. Where does character theology fit into that? Go ahead. I don't Tom. know if my, that my question is clear. Yeah, yeah. go ahead, Tom. Um, you notice when. I'll go back to where Larry was and then, and John followed up on that. And we saw it too in other little incidents there by other people. They went back to other stories. And that's one of the things in character theology we need to see that all stories are embedded in other stories. And if that's true, then all characters are embedded in other characters. And so we can go back to look at other characters to see what their lives were like in relation to what the lives were like for Jonah. What did he do? And so forth. You can see that comparison that's there. Yeah. I think in character theology, people are going to systemize this, <laughs> systematize this, I should say. <laughs> They're going to do that. Western people yeah, will. Western people will. The Western people are going to systematize this. There's no, we're going to have systematic character theology. <laughs> But here, here's the thing. Here's how I'd respond to that. Also, also, another angle of responsibility is that we no, we don't we don't come with our systematic theology. We who are educated in it, we don't come with that and then go to the characters and and deduce what well, it's. This is inductive, inductive, inductive oral Bible study. In other words, we 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 don't we put away our presuppositions. We start with the characters. And we inductively look at the what the characters say and do, who the characters are, and their interaction with other characters, what they say and do. And then from that, we induce inductively insights, observations, and applications from what the characters say and do and the decisions they make or the decisions they don't make. What we do in simply the story we ask those questions of every character. What does this character say? What does this character do? What decisions does this character make? What decisions didn't they make? And what do we learn from that? What, what can we understand from that? And we, so we, the, the theology comes out of the characters from their actions, their decisions, their responses. Comes out of the characters. We don't overlay a theology on them. Theology comes out of the characters does that does that make sense bill you and i both studied uh with uh the guys at fuller uh, pete wagner wrote a book his his pete wagner, yeah. book, uh 
which was church growth and the whole gospel. I think what we're talking about here is uh, understanding God uh, from both sides of the coin. Yeah. Yes, we have to have systematic theology, but you can't have systematic theology without characters, without yeah. contexts. Uh, and if you try to have a, a uh, systematic theology by thinking through the principles and concepts as Tom continues to drive home for us, you're going to miss the beauty yeah. of what he wanted to give us to begin with. It wasn't concepts. It was his interaction with people and specific yeah. things he was doing. Uh, with every every sailor on the boat with Jonah, Tom, uh, they were they were influenced by that. And we forget them too. So it's both sides of the coin. Uh, a two sided theology. Yes, conceptual principles, uh, all that stuff. But unless it's yeah, rooted yeah. in the middle of it with characters, and we miss the, we miss the point. Yeah. It adds that ascetic side that we tend to miss and set aside. We're not supposed to be playing with that, right? But you could feel the heat, right, from that eastern wind. And yeah. when that thing dried up, you know, now he wasn't protected from the sun. And so there's the ascetic side of it, too, that's there. It adds that concreteness, and that gives us that, that holism that we are so prone in the West to just you know, bifurcate everything and separate everything and categorize everything. It adds demonstration. So we got to see Jonah in, in action. We got to see the Ninevites in action. We got to see God in action. And so that demonstration in contrast to definitions, which we always want to focus on the definitions, right? Rather than the demonstrations, that lived experience that Jonah went through, and what he experienced. It's interesting too that the, the theology we can learn from Jonah. Here's a prophet that was always going the wrong way, right? <laughs> he was supposed to go to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish. He was, okay, God seems to be done here. What does he do? He doesn't head back home, go west. He goes back east, back to the city. <laughs> so, what can we learn theologically from him as well? And actually, it goes beyond theology. It goes to ethics as, as well. So that would take that also into consideration. But the focus is going to be strongly on relationships, right? It adds voice. We got to hear God talking. We got to hear Jonah talking. <clears throat> so those are some of the things that are, it's an addition, a lot of additions that character theology adds without pushing it aside. There's no sell by date on systematic theology or biblical theology or whatever. It's another perspective of how to look at that. And it all goes back to the ability to read characters. Yeah. Here's an aspect I might throw in uh, that's definitely an aspect of character theology is the whole concept of face. Many cultures, you know, honor, shame cultures, saving face is a huge issue so every character has a face and what do we learn about their faces as they face god and does the face of god come through through the characters faces and what does that do about us uh how does that help us our faces grow and change how does it help our true face to come out our true face 
what's my true face? What's the, what's the face of this character as he or she faces God? And how does that help form my face before God? Just the whole notion of face and saving face and honor and shame is a big part, I think, of, the, of character theology. Did, did Jonah save face or did Jonah lose face? And what does that say about our, our true face before God? You know, yeah. I think if you want to go there. What about all the other worldviews? <laughs> fear, power. Aren't, aren't there some stories about uh, power and fear? About what? About, I'm sorry, you get closer to the mic. Uh, fear and power. Fear and power. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. all. Are, Those are, are there a few fear. stories about that? Aren't yeah. there a few about guilt and innocence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Aren't there a few about you know, the uh, animistic, uh, naturalistic? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we can learn about all those anthropological concepts that that, that Chuck was talking about through the characters. Look at the look at the fear power confrontations. Uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, fear power confrontations. There's all kinds of anthropological concepts that also we induce inductively through through character theology. We don't just and start that's how we share those abstract. stories too. It's we don't just, just start with abstract anthropology. We start with the characters. Yeah. I want to just interrupt and I, my internet drops there for a minute, so I may have missed it. Um, but I didn't know, Tom, can you say any more on the relationship between character theology and biblical theology? And you may have touched it. and I missed it, but I. Uh, no, you didn't miss it. Um, I didn't say anything on that, but I, biblical theology is going to, it's thematic in a sense. It's looking for the red thread in a sense from Genesis through scripture, right? It's taking us that way. Character theology is going to take us inside that. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 It's going to take us inside it and the nuance it and break it down for us. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be a distinctive that it would take. And that's why, and then the reading of characters is what was so central. And when you think about it, how natural that is, for most people in the world outside the West, <laughs> they are good. The Ifogao are great at reading people. All right. I learned a lot about how to read people through because of the Ifogao. And they can read the setting. They can read the dress, the names, yeah. physical features, the expressions, you know, the changes, the conflicts that are there, relationships that they have and so forth, the value system and back into the honor, shame and, and the, the, um, fear of power one is big and Ifogao. Yeah. Those two are the big ones and a little bit of not any purity and pollution. They just don't have yeah. that one. <clears throat> so all those things, they, they're great at reading it. So biblical theology is more the macro character. Theology is more the micro as it, as it moves through the macro <clears throat> going deeper. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Bill and I, can I just say Bill and I taught at Dallas theological seminary and the most, probably the most popular, department is the biblical theology department. We had a young man named Mick. And uh, what was really telling from that experience, and we actually did an interview with Mick, was that he actually was exposed to all 66 books. And uh, if you'll listen to the podcast, maybe we'll, we'll put it in the future, we can give you all access to it, because it was very telling. He said, 
on the very first day, what he realized is over four years of a THM, he could summarize all 66 books. He knew uh, specific biblical theology type concepts, but what he realized was he couldn't tell one Bible story in a content accurate way. So the values of that biblical theology department, and I'm a Dallas grad and I teach there, so I, I feel like they do a great job on that, but he, he was dumbfounded, I think, <laughs> by the fact that he could not, in the course of four years of study in a very deeply biblical way, unable to tell even one story. So he was not exposed to the power of story and what we're talking about as far as character type theology. And, uh, and we watched his progression and we didn't let him take one note for five days. Yeah. which put him in <laughs> diabetic shock, this poor guy. Uh, and I think this is why I've been to nine different seminaries teaching this course. I see it, I see very clearly the impact of character theology, uh, just basic inductive Bible study in an oral way on people that are highly uh, intelligent and academic in the areas of yeah. systematic and biblical theology, but their minds are being kind of expanded and blown as it were, uh, when they're exposed to character theology. Yeah. Can I ask you a question too? What's what are the implications of that? What's the implication well, of the story you just told? It's it's because think? we're so highly uh, literate. In my course, they wanted them to read eight hundred pages. There's no way under God's green earth uh, in an orality course I'm going to have them read eight hundred <laughs> pages. Hmm. Now, if you have five courses at eight hundred pages. Think about that. That's 4,000 pages you're going to read in a four-month period. And I blame Tom Stephan for not renovating <laughs> my studies in the PhD. Tom Stephan might have been the guy that told us to read a book one night and give a report the next day when I did my PhD. <laughs> if you are not highly literate off the charts, educated past your intelligence, you'll never do that. And I think that's the problem is we've moved to that level in academia to where people are not appreciation, appreciating the power of story. I wonder, I, I'm, I'm just conscious our time is running. And Hi, so Rumbi. I, this is Rumbi. Oh, <laughs> you're welcome. Hi, Rumbi. Hi, how are you? They're from you're Zimbabwe. They're storytellers I, in Zimbabwe. You're still telling stories? I thought you'd not remember me. <laughs> I sure remember you. Yes, I do. And you're you're still telling stories down there in Zimbabwe, aren't you? Yes, we are. Well <laughs> That's done. Wonderful. That's great. Well done. Well done. Yeah. I was going to say work. that Larry talked about this student, this DTS student, Dallas student. Um, we taught this course. One of the things he said was that this was the least DTS type. <laughs> course that's ever been offered at DTS. <laughs> this is the most unlike DTS course that's ever been offered at DTS. Mm -hmm. It was revolutionary for him. You know, he knew the Bible. He could summarize every every book of the Bible, but he couldn't tell one story. <laughs> whereas, whereas people, oral learners, they know lots of stories. They probably can't summarize every book of the Bible and give you the dates and the facts and the introduction to the, you know, all of that. But they know the Absolutely. stories, and they go deep with the stories, and they teach out of the stories. The stories are in their hearts. That's 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 character theology. That's uh, that's oral 
oral inductive Bible study, oral inductive Bible teaching is is interactive storytelling. Yeah. The question I have for, for Larry, um, when because it's folk character theology tends to focus on the stories, right? That and parts, I mean the gospel has lots of stories in it, so it's it it gets micro in a sense. What can happen very easily, and Jennifer Jackson found this out in her research there in Africa, is that the, the grand narrative got lost in all this. How do we keep that fellow, your, your student there who made those comments, does he have a, a picture of the grand narrative as well? Or is that part of, it just has 66 pieces or does he have a grand narrative that ties the whole thing together? Yeah, well, my PhD was on grand narrative. It was the walk through the Bible, and I'm actually teaching it in Thai in a few days, teaching in Sacramento. Uh, I think what has happened is you have to lay the foundation of the grand narrative first, the meta narrative, and then you plug in the individual stories. And I think that's the lacking. Uh, DTS does an unusually good job on the redemptive storyline so that uh, you see Jesus in all of those 66 books and you're able to, uh, I think, articulate the Missio Dei, the big, the big picture. Uh, they can see the forest. It's just that the individual stories have not, they haven't had a value system where those have power. Uh -huh. uh, and I think it's, I would come back to this very highly academic, literate. We're very sequential, very logical, and we're very much abstract thinkers. And I work in Thailand where they're concrete thinkers. They are able to do flesh and blood type theology. That's what I call it, flesh and blood, because yeah. the, what Jonah experienced is what very close to their life experience. And I, I think that's been the paradigm shift that I have made is I want the scriptures to come uh, cookies on the bottom shelf where people have access to truth, but at a story level rather than at a more abstract kind of idea level. Yeah. We're good at the, uh, the bones, the skeleton. We're not so good at putting the meat on the bones. <laughs> That's good. That's a good and Of course, this is the whole, isn't this the whole genius and the whole message of the incarnation, mm -hmm. flesh and blood, the incarnation. Uh, and in a sense, almost every, every character in the Bible is a kind of incarnation of truth i mean not to compare it, com compare it with the incarnation of jesus but every character in flesh and blood is an incarnation of some truth that's why that character is in the bible flesh and blood concrete personal face personal character and flesh and blood that we can relate to and we draw our theology and truth from that why don't we call it incarnational theology? I mean, it almost goes at a deeper level than character theology when you put it that way. Yeah. Because incarnation is too abstract. <laughs> character <laughs> makes it human. <clears throat> That's a good response, Tom. That's a good response. <laughs> I, I'm wondering in just, and I, I realize our time is short, but I, and I, well, I want to go temple ways. I know Chuck's got something he wanted to mention. I wanted to just say, were there any other questions, I, any other questions that were coming out just in the group that needed to be asked before our week? I don't want to miss out. I feel like we got a lot of really fun.
folks that have thought through this, and I don't want to miss a chance for someone to ask a question. Anything else on people's hearts? I, I think what's on my heart is to help uh, the training. We At Dallas Seminary, they have high level of exposition, and this Mick guy decided to drop a class on advanced expositional teaching that he was going to take because he took our class. I, I think... What I would like to see is much more practical training, particularly at the preaching level. I mean, it's one thing to say in small groups and in evangelism that you can do storytelling. But when I'm at Dallas Seminary, they're always going to ask, what about the epistles? They're going to always ask, how can I bring this to the pulpit? Uh, the theme of Dallas Seminary is preach the word. So if you cannot show that there is power in storytelling from the pulpit, and relating to secondarily oral Americans in 2022, then you're not going to get a lot of mileage with, uh, with what we're trying to yeah. do. And I can say this, we have to, to reach the gatekeepers. Uh, I, I work with people that are low level, you know, pastors in small churches and all, but uh, when I'm in Thailand, I'm trying to reach people that are the influencers and the ones that are leaders because they'll have power over a whole denomination. If you reach uh, a bishop of a denomination in Africa, you can have storytelling go across the oh, board. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I think the group that we're with today is, I think that's a real prayer request is, how can we make this valid and impact the gatekeepers? I'm always having trouble at Dallas Seminary trying to, to make inroads. And my goal there is to throw a bomb into Dallas Seminary and then run. <laughs> and as a missionary, I can do crazy stuff, but, uh, you know, how do you make incremental changes in the way in a post-Christian culture, we've got to make the changes. Our seminaries are going to die. Our training approaches yeah. Yeah, are going to yeah. die unless we have a much higher appreciation for secondary orality, yeah. uh, how to train people in, in story communication. I guess okay. what you say, Tom, one of our, one of our purposes in, in writing this book, uh, return to oral hermeneutics. Tom and I are both highly educated, you know, PhDs, doctoral. One of the one of the is is this this book speaks the language of academics of theologians and who are many of whom are gatekeepers. So if we want to get buy-in from gatekeepers, buy-in from theologians, from highly educated people, we got to speak their language. That's why this book is kind of abstract. But it and it uses abstract language. It's academic. It's communication theory. It's theology. It's anthropology. It's psychology. But it's a way to talk the language of people who are educated and want to want to be talked to that way. If we can reach seminary theologians mm -hmm. and seminary professors through this to help them buy into the re, to the to, to orality and storytelling. That's one way to reach some some gatekeepers, I think. Yeah. I think one of the things we'll have to move into is the um, the epistles and its relationship to orality, its relationship to relationships. And mm -hmm. we start thinking of the epistles, the letters, right? Letters are what? They're either written to, to initiate a conversation or to continue a conversation. Yeah. If we can start to see it from that perspective, that gives it a whole different, it, it ties it back into the overall story from Genesis to Revelation. And I think um, 
who was it? Uh, Gary Bird said, uh, we're all literary tourists. We, we are in deeply need of a guide. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so our job is going to be to, to guide. And I think one of the future projects that we have to focus on is the epistles and its relationship to character theology. And I think the key, Stanley Harwas, I think he's in Notre Dame or was there, um, sums it up this way. He says, the lives of the saints are the hermeneutic key to scripture. And I was taught, no, it, grammar is the hermeneutic key to scripture. That right, may right. have worked in modernity. It will not work in post-modernity. And that's why our seminaries are having problems. Part of the reason, not the Good only point. Reason. Good point, Tom. Yeah, thanks. Good. Hey, Chuck, share with us. You're a, you're a, you had a point you wanted to make or... Not a point, a continuation of what you're talking about. Uh, Billy and Ricky and Samuel Chang uh, are the orality uh, uh, representatives at Lausanne. This event is a Lausanne event. Uh, they represented well the International Orality Network. Uh, what we are grateful for is their emphasis on this and Bill and Tom bringing you into this conversation like this. Uh, however, if you look in the room right now, we're preaching to the choir. Yeah. Uh, what we are planning and have already begun doing is having regional events, not that are general invitations to everybody, but specific individuals for what you call, again, as gatekeepers, people who are respected in the fields of theology and even in teaching hermeneutics, uh, gathering them first virtually and then face to face. Uh, our first one uh, we had planned on having this fall. We've had to delay that a little bit. Uh, so, Tom, I've got a public question for you. You're coming here to teach with us in January. Uh, can you make it a few days early? <laughs> I know we're keeping you also a little bit late to work on the orality survey as well. But, uh, <laughs> how about a, a few days early and we have that gathering in January? Again, it would, and I don't want you to answer now. I'm, I don't want to embarrass you. Uh, but having events like that, where we get people together, give them some substance to think about prior to their showing up, and that will mean a, a couple of virtual conferences, conference calls, then coming together, meeting with an output of them producing more things for the world of theologians out there, Bible schools, seminaries, whomever, That'll help move the needle. And if we have some good names on there, and I've talked with people that you know their names already, uh, that would be very open uh, to promoting this, but it's got to be from the global south. We yeah. can't keep expecting to influence the church of the 21st century from the West. So we're starting out with leaders from, we've got eight seminaries here in uh, the Philippines that are the major seminaries of AGSD. Uh, we have Singapore, we have Indonesia, we have India, uh, yes, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia. Uh, so it's going to be an Asian gathering here. Uh, Billy, are you going to be at the gathering in uh, Kigali next week? No, I won't be. Oh, I thought you were going to be there. Oh, okay. I was Kigali uh, in Rwanda. Yeah, yeah. In there's Rwanda. a morality conference there. Theological educators were talking about 
introducing orality in the major seminaries of Africa in the classroom and the curricula. So that's what this Scott, is. Maybe you be, in touch with, be in touch with Godwill, my friend here from Zimbabwe. He's a, he's a leader of Zimbabwe. Uh, he understands uh, orality. He's a storyteller, yes. but he's also a theologian. Be in yeah, touch. I'm with, sure you know uh, with God Victor Mati Capita uh, with Living Water International. Victor yeah. is heading this one up for us. Anyhow, so the point of all this is we've got to have gatherings of the global South. Yes, we can bring tools. Yes, we can bring ideas, but it's got to be their ownership. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do. We're going to have a gathering here, one in Africa, I hope. And Billy, that's why I was hoping you'd be there so we could stimulate that conversation and, and on this topic. Because I, I wish I was. People don't come by invitation in generically as, as good as that is. They come when we invite the right people to do the right thing at the right time and the right place. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do. Uh, if you know people we need to include, that's where I'm coming with all this, please let me know. Uh, we're probably going to have the first virtual gathering in October. Then hopefully a face-to-face -face in uh, uh, January. Uh, so who are those people we need to have? They need to be, as, a, as we said, in one sense, gatekeepers. I don't care if these are, are famous people or they're in a big school or whatever, but these are the, the game changers. They're the emerging leaders that are going to show their stuff eventually. That's good. Thanks, Billy. No, that's good. I want to just say, I want to get it down. The one in January will be in, it will be in Manila. In Manila, because I've got all the resources here and we've got okay. the eight yep. seminaries of AGST. Good. And then you said next week is one in, in um, Rwanda. In Kigali. Yeah. Kigali. Okay. And then possibly yeah. a virtual one in October. That will be on this specific topic on oral. Okay. Yes. Great. Okay. Good, good. No, I'm glad. That's thank you, Chuck, for making us aware. And I'm sad to miss the one in Kigali. That's uh, no, that's going to be enriched. I'm sorry, Bill. No, that's good. Friends, I again thank you for taking time. And it it is true. Um, in in some ways, this is familiar territory for a lot of us. And yet, I find talking about it with you all, I I don't know where to go to have some of these conversations. And maybe you guys mm -hmm. have, you know, you may be having these on regular basis. Um, you know, and, and maybe you have that within your network kind of on a daily or weekly basis, but I find them to be a real encouragement um, to me and, and helping me kind of just kind of keep thinking through some of these issues. So I want to say a, a special word of appreciation. Thank you everyone for your participation and particularly Tom and Bill for helping us kind of think our way through um, some of these things again and, and with some fresh eyes. Um, yeah. So, Next month, we're, we're scheduled for next month, and we're excited. It's gonna, uh, we're going to go back to oral the Hebraic hermeneutics. Yep. And, uh, Hebrew, so, Hebrew hermeneutics, right. Which, which I, I think we'll, it's, we've already touched on that, but I think we'll kind of do a deep dive, and, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, so. It's important because it shows, this is, what it shows, Hebrew hermeneutics shows, is that this is not some new fad. It's not some new postmodern fad. This is rooted in the Hebrew Bible. I, I think is good for all of us to just kind of have that fresh in our minds or kind of keep it in our minds as we're, as we're trying to kind of continually um, 
you know, just as we're, as we're trying to continue to, it's helpful to kind of be reminded this isn't just an American thing or this isn't just a culture specific thing. It is coming out of a biblical paradigm, right. which I think is so. Right, 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 right. Our next, our next webinar will be on August 16th, August 16th. That's what I was just checking. Um, so again, as Chuck said, um, if there are intention, if there's specific people that you need to invite, feel free to do that. Let them know they're more than welcome. I do see one raised hand. Is that a Mecca? Um, I'm not sure if that is from previously or if there was a, a follow-up question. Opara. Uh, Chuck, I want to give you Godwill's, uh, Godwill's email here on the chat. Just a minute. Also, somebody else asked about the uh, ATS program. It's not, it's not a course. It's an entire program. It's a THM to PhD program in orality studies. It's the first one like it in the world. There's been some good foundations before and some great courses, but this is an entire uh, good. Uh, yeah, great. study program. Launches right. in two weeks. Thank you, Bill. Excellent. Good. Um, hey, what if we can we ask another Sarah, second? Sarah, would you be willing to pray over us before we finish? I want to give you uh, Godwill's oh. email, Chuck. Um, okay. Fire away. Billy, did I hear correctly? You asked me if I would pray. Yeah, would you? And we can let Bill send that in the chat. But if you'd pray, yeah, that'd be great. I, I, That's I awesome. Sent, uh, sent that to you, Chuck. That's Godwill's email. He and he and his wife Rumbi are leaders in Zimbabwe. And I think it'd be very important to include them in this. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Tara. Thank you much. Father God, I thank you so much that you are here. And we just thank you, God, that you are at work in each of us and that you're at work in the nations. And that as we think about your character, God, we get to know ourselves so much better. And so I pray for each person, Father, where they're at and how they are serving that as they study and seek to know your character and to understand your work, Father, in your word and our history and in your work in our present day, God, I just pray that you make each person your catalyst, your story, warrior, God. Make them your storyers, Lord. I've prayed this for many years over my children, and I pray this over them, God, that you move with power and authority, that as they are organizing classes and trainings, and trainers and leaders and teachers, Lord, as the trainers of the world, I pray right now they know the presence of your Holy Spirit and that they're able to know Jesus more intimately. And in that, God, that they're able to go and give your glory in a mighty and powerful way. I pray today that if they have physical needs, mental needs, social needs, and spiritual needs, you just meet them at that and that there be no battle that is forged against them that has a hold because they belong to you, Jesus. And so we rebuke the enemy and to pray that you set the path straight and that you blaze the trail so they can move forward to bring your glory so that we can bring the blessing that you gave to Abraham that we have through him, through Jesus, Lord, to the nations for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.